0: Welcome to All I Know Is This, a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Richmond, Virginia. I'm Amy Starr-Redwine, your host and one of the pastors here at the church, and I am delighted today to get to have a conversation with my friend, uh, Dr. Ryan Bonfiglio, who is an assistant professor in the practice of Old Testament at Candler School of Theology, which is part of Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm so glad to get to have this conversation with you today.
1: Amy, it's so good to be with you and to be on your podcast. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining me. And as I've been thinking this fall in our sermon series about biblical conversations in good faith and looking at Bible stories and what they have to teach us about how we can have honest and meaningful good faith conversations at a time when that just seems um, harder and harder to do. I really felt like you had a lot to add to this conversation, both just because of who you are, but also because of the work you do as a professor. And I know you also have some other projects going at Emory and would love for you to tell us about that.
1: Yeah, that's right. I, I sort of wear two different hats at Candler School of Theology. The one hat is the normal professor hat. I teach Old Testament classes like our other professors in the Old Testament area do, and I write things about the Old Testament. But the other hat I wear is that I'm the director of a new initiative at Candler called the Candler Foundry, and essentially what the Candler Foundry is, it's our effort to reimagine the audience of theological education. Instead of thinking about uh, the students who come to us at Candler and enroll in one of our degree programs as the audience, we're trying to think about the church as the audience of theological education, and we're trying to take what we do, what we know how to do, teach courses and do in-depth biblical and theological reflection. We're trying to take that out beyond our walls and out beyond our degree programs and put it in communities put it in congregations and and basically make it accessible and available to folks who probably will never go to seminary so it's this it's a new project and i'm really excited to be engaged with it because it's creative work but it also means that we're having conversations with a much different and broader audience than we typically do in seminary.
0: That is really exciting to hear about, Ryan. I'm really grateful that you are doing that work. When you and I first connected several years ago, you came to the church that I was serving at the time and, and did some work with us and, and preached and taught, which was all wonderful. But I think what really struck me was what you shared with us about your research about theological education. And how it has kind of evolved over time and moved away from the church and more in academia, in seminaries and divinity schools. That that has really stuck with me because it seems to me that one of the things the church really needs to reclaim is this capacity for spiritual formation and education of people who, just like you said, are not necessarily going to go to seminary. I know it was my experience, my first few weeks in seminary of just feeling like, oh my gosh, every Christian should get to have this experience. (laughs) So I would just love to hear about what you're learning now that you're actually kind of doing a project like that, and um, particularly about the conversations that you're having and how they're different in the church versus with your students at Candler.
1: Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, one of the great things about the sort of entrepreneurial work that is the Candler Foundry is that you're experimenting all the time. And, and through those experiments of rethinking what seminary is and how it works, you learn a lot. You learn about, about the folks you're trying to engage with. And I think one of the learnings that we've had that's that's been really important is that We've been reading the stats wrong in terms of the seminary perspective on enrollment. So it's it's kind of commonplace now to know that many seminaries are facing declining enrollment numbers. And I've seen so often uh, the conclusion from that observation that people must not be interested in theological education. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, people would be quitting their jobs, moving their families, and enrolling in a full-time three-year degree and getting an MDiv like you have and I have and, and many others have. And But I think that's completely the wrong, we're learning that that's the wrong conclusion to this. There are a lot of reasons why people aren't quitting their jobs, moving their families, and enrolling in seminary. Mm-hmm. but it's not a lack of interest. I think people, in fact, have a deep longing to do really in-depth biblical and theological reflection with a level of of engagement and depth that often goes beyond what one finds in Sunday schools and small groups. And that's nothing negative about those outlets, but they want something more. They want that seminary experience, but they want it in place. They want it in a way that can integrate into their lives. They want it in a way that uh, will be accessible and will be relevant to the questions and issues that they're wrestling with in their everyday lives, in their work, in Mm -hmm. their Christian communities. And so that's really, it's been affirming for us. That was our hunch that that was the case, but we're learning uh, that that's more and more the case these days. And in fact, I would even go a step further is that we're beginning to see that people are leaving the church not because they're disinterested in spirituality, but in Mm -hmm. fact, because they haven't found the church to be a place where their deep and complex and authentic questions are taken seriously. They haven't found a place to dig deep. And so they're looking elsewhere. They're looking to TED Talks or Mm -hmm. courses or other sort of resources that do education in a deep level. And so we are imagining in a nutshell, how can education be a way back to church for millennials and for Gen Zers and for other people who might have become disillusioned with the institution of religion? How can education be a means of outreach and evangelism in a certain sense?
0: Well, I just love that, Ryan, and really look forward to following that work and for the fruit that I'm, I'm sure is going to come from it. Um, but I can certainly attest, you know, certainly here at First Presbyterian, but actually in every church I've served, there have been a lot of people who have always just amazed me in their desire and willingness to to go deep in biblical studies, in theological studies. I know here uh, we have a member of our pastoral staff, Wilson Kennedy, who just started a Reformed Theology reading group. And you know, it's always kind of like, "Huh, is anybody actually going to show up for that?" And people <laughs> do, and and I think are are really excited to. So for folks who are listening, that's happening now, and they're uh, reading Christian Doctrine by Shirley Guthrie, a, a great book to dive into. So that is great to hear. And you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about in this season of the pandemic, where uh, we've noted that. So many things are being revealed and other things are being accelerated. Um, For me, as far as the church is concerned, I really think we're seeing as much as ever how much competition we have out there for just like what you're saying, that people are looking for ways to go deep and to try to make sense of the world. And the church hasn't always done the best job of offering that I'm trying to see that as an opportunity. And particularly I think in the realm of conversations, whether, you know, I think it's easy to look at the polarization politically and think those are the only conversations we're avoiding. But I, I think it actually goes further than that. And that part of what we need and and the church needs to be able to offer people is some language and some theological framework to make sense of of their lives and to talk about it. Um, So I don't know what you think about that or what you're seeing along those lines.
1: I think that's one of our great struggles in the church is not that we don't want to start conversations about faith with both people in our pews, but also people outside of the church, but we haven't always had the means to do so. We haven't excelled at the means of starting and sparking conversations. And I think there's a couple disconnects there in my experience. Frankly, one is something of a technological disconnect that we, I think many churches are frozen in the 1980s or 90s when it comes to our media savvy. Now, this is actually changing quite rapidly because yeah. of covid-19 as we've all had to rethink and and up our digital game but I remember in the church, another first Presbyterian church of Atlanta, not uh, Richmond, that I served in, our members were professional and they were engaged in really high-level work in so many different areas. You know, their standard of education was the super highly polished TED Talk Mm -hmm. uh, that they could find for free online. But yet when it came to resources we have, they would come into an old dusty library and literally in 2016, we had VHS tapes. (laughs)
0: Nice. Of,
1: you know, just, and like really poorly done, you know, and I, I don't, again, I'm trying not to be overly critical. This is hard stuff, but yeah. I think there's been a disconnect in our desire to engage at a deep level mm-hmm. and our ability to produce content that has even close to the production value that we see in so many other areas. I mean, you talked about competition, but the bar has been raised in terms of not only what we produce, but even the the shortness of TED Talks. I mean, some of these VHS tapes, the content was really good, but it was a static image and the person was talking for 90 minutes. And that's just, that's a hard conversation starter. So we need to rethink even the technology involved of how do we get people in the room for these conversation starters.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it it does seem to me that actually it's not it's not a word that we presbyterians use all that often, but but it really is it's part of evangelism. It's part of being able to as you as you put it, you know, talk about our faith, which is not about going out and knocking on doors to talk about our faith, but just in our daily lives being able to make some of those connections between, you know, what we're reading or watching or listening to, and again, kind of having that framework, that theological framework to make sense of it. So one of the reasons that I'm really excited you're here is to to for you to have the opportunity to put on your Old Testament professor hat and help us think through our passage for Sunday, which is a uh, I mean, I guess I feel like I'm always saying it's one of my favorites, (laughs) but it's a great one from the book of Exodus, and it's Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, through chapter 2, verse 10, which kind of bridges together Two stories that do have something to do with each other and I think have have something in common in terms of the kinds of conversations that we see happening here in this text. We are just at the beginning of the book of Exodus, and at at the end of Genesis, we we see Joseph has, has come to power in Pharaoh's household and so the people of Israel have a an advocate for them in a place of power. But then at the beginning of Exodus, when Joseph dies, what we hear is that a new king comes to power who did not know Joseph. And this is the Pharaoh who enslaves the Israelites and is ruthless and imposing tasks upon them and makes their lives bitter with hard service. And then yet... These strong people continue to thrive. And so there's a lot of fear about what's going to happen if these people get too strong. And so Pharaoh calls these midwives, Shifra and Pua, and tells them if they're at a birth and a boy is born to kill that newborn child, but if it's a girl to let the girls live. But the midwives uh, disobey them. And when he asks them why— They say, well, the Hebrew women, unlike the Egyptian women, are just too strong, and they give birth before we can ever get to them, and then they are rewarded by God. But Pharaoh goes a step further and then says that any boy that's born is to be thrown into the Nile, and so then we get this story of a baby being born whose mother cannot bear, of course, to throw him into the river. So she hides him as long as she can. And when she can't hide him anymore, she makes a basket for him, puts him um, in the basket in the river, and his sister stands there to watch. Pharaoh's daughter pulls the basket out of the river, and the sister very shrewdly, watching all of this, says, well, shall I go get you a nurse from the Hebrew women? to nurse the child, and Pharaoh's daughter says yes, which is how Moses ends up right back in the arms of his mother. So it is a wonderful story and contains what I have come to think of as some tricky conversations (laughs) by uh, these women, first these two midwives, and then um, Moses's sister who are um, really savvy and subversive in their words and in their actions. You know, I I certainly don't want to suggest that we would want to enter into every conversation with that kind of um, stance. But in both of these cases, they have, these are women with very little power against a really ruthless and evil king who is seeking to destroy God's people. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on on this passage and what it, what we might have to learn from it.
1: Well, I'm with you Amy. This is an amazing passage. In part because we think of the book of Exodus and we think of Moses. We think of Aaron. And here in these early chapter, it's these five women who not only set the stage of this drama, but they enable uh, Moses to come on the stage in the first mm-hmm. place. And it's such an extraordinary story of these women and their subversive, disruptive power. And I love the irony right from the bat where Pharaoh in that initial command to the midwives, who is he concerned about? Well, he's only concerned about the men, boys. right? He only wants to kill the little, the boys. What? But then the great irony of course, is that these five women, one of whom is his own daughter, <laughs> they work together and in concert to thwart his death plans Mm -hmm. is thwart his plans to uh to oppress and stamp down this people so it's so so lovely for that reason but you know you're right i think there are some really difficult conversations that happen along the way and that first one of course is the one between pharaoh And the midwives and just to set the stage with that there's there's an interesting issue right off the bat um in hebrew these women the midwives are called hebrew midwives that's the nrsv translation Mm -hmm. but that phrase in hebrew can be understood in one of two ways it could be hebrews who serve as midwives or it could be egyptians who serve as midwives to the hebrews the hebrew phrase could be read both ways and i actually think it makes a little more sense that these are egyptians who serve Mm -hmm. as midwives to the Hebrews. That's why Pharaoh goes to them and thinks that they will obey his command. He Mm -hmm. thinks that they're going to be on board with this idea. He assumes that they are going to be threatened by the rise of the Israelite people as much as he is threatened. Mm -hmm. Little does he know, of course, that these women do fear a power, but they don't fear Pharaoh. They fear the God of this other people. That Mm -hmm. in itself is a remarkably Disruptive, subversive act, and you know. Yeah. Then they, then, then Pharaoh comes in and checks and says, "Well, you know, apparently he hears. We don't get this part of the story, but he hears that that these uh, the boys aren't being killed, and he goes to check in. And I love what these women say. I mean, I think they they obviously totally make up this story, right? This mm-hmm. is yeah. uh, this idea that the, that the Hebrew women are too strong or something like that. They can't even get there in time to deliver the babies. Well, it's to me, I I hear that as an obvious cover up for this, what is really nothing short of civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. This is an act of protest against these women. They can't do a lot. They can't raise a power, or they can't do certain things, I should say. They can't raise an army. They can't physically uh, confront Pharaoh, but they can work within their realm and within their power to do something that substantially disrupts what Pharaoh wants to accomplish here. And, and I just love that power that they have. And then Amy, the one last thing I'll just say about this first part is that it's really also striking to know that these two women are named. Mm -hmm. Uh, Women aren't always named or even often named in scripture. And the fact that they are named is significant, especially in light of the fact that Pharaoh is not named. Pharaoh is a title, right? That's not, that's not his name. And so these nobody women thwart the power of this no-name Pharaoh in this lovely reversal, this power reversal uh, that becomes so true of the Exodus story itself. It's echoed in Hannah's prayer, it's echoed in the Magnificat uh, that Mary prays far along in into the pages of Luke, but here we see glimpses of that inversion of power that the kingdom of God is all about.
0: Mm, well, I love that, and I especially oh, I so appreciate that detail about whether these are Hebrew midwives or Egyptian midwives to the Hebrews. In the first sermon in the series, uh, we talked about the call of Jeremiah and reflected on this idea of vocation and that our vocation is less about the the job that we do and the fact that. Um, We are all called and claimed by God to be about God's work in the world and to see all people as God's beloved children. And it feels like it's just striking me that these midwives are really living into that vocation. And, of course, they have a vocation that is all about, you know, bringing life into the world. That's right. And what Pharaoh has asked them to do is so antithetical to the work that they have been called to do in the world that i I feel they were in a a really not only a unique position to defy him uh, but also to have the the courage and the will to do so because it was so clear that it was so wrong.
1: <laughs> That's a beautiful observation. I mean all of these women, these five women in this story they're all in the in the business of protecting and bringing forth life, and Mm -hmm. Pharaoh is in the the business of suppressing and annihilating life, and so we get that, this is a life or death matter, and all of these women, by virtue of their humanity, by virtue of their connection to this little boy, Moses, Mm -hmm. um, they they stand up to that power, not even on religious grounds. I mean, we don't know, of course, we don't get these background conversations about, well, why would they do this? But I would say that it just, it's out of, it's out of their humanity that they can't go along with this, with this plot of Pharaoh. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes, definitely. So then what, what about um, this baby Moses story? (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah, this one is also incredibly complicated and inspiring. To me, you know, the explicit conversation is what happens in Pharaoh's court when Pharaoh's daughter discovers this baby and has to have this conversation with the sister and and so on and so forth. But to bring it back just a few steps, there's this unspoken conversation that would have led to Moses's mother and her decision to put this baby in Mm. a basket. And Mm. it's nothing short of an act of desperation. And I can't even begin to imagine the agony And the sorrow and the grief, it seems to me that a mother would only get to this point when there was literally no other hope uh, for this baby. It was the equivalent of abandoning a baby on the doorsteps of a church or a Mm -hmm. fire station, right? She Mm -hmm. was giving up this baby to die. And we can imagine the tears of Moses's mother. Um, But early on in the story, though, we get a glimpse, we get a hint that this isn't just an act of desperation, it's an act of salvation. Mm. Because the little basket Mm -hmm. that the baby is placed in is called a teva. And elsewhere in Genesis, that word teva appears, but it gets translated really differently. Um, it happens in the flood story, where Teva is translated as Ark. And in fact, that's the construction of this little papyrus basket and how it was sealed over with pitch and bitumen, that echoes the imagery of how the ark is created. So I think though it's an act of desperation, I think there's that we get this sense as a reader that just as God had at one point, delivered people through this Teva, so too would God once again show up mm. in the midst of death, in the midst of death that involves water. Pharaoh mm-hmm. was calling for all of the the sons to be drowned in the Nile. that God once again would provide a means of deliverance in the form of an ark. Uh,
0: now, what a great that... detail. <laughs> Thank yet, you. Yeah, there's just, God.
1: there are all these lovely things that you know, are, are sort of lost to us as we read in English. Mm-hmm. And, and that's okay, we still get the sense of these stories. But I think the ancient Israelite readers, these, these connections would pop off the page to them, and uh-huh. they would hear these allusions to these other stories.
0: And, um, it does just lift up sort of the literary nature of these texts, and, as you said, the way that we often read them, we're reading them piecemeal, so um it's it's lovely to be able to yeah. make those connections. I just am feeling so inspired by the example of these women, and I know for me, one of the hardest conversations to have is the conversation where you speak up against an injustice that you see. And, you know, I just know in my life, there are certainly times when I wish I had more capacity to do that. And uh, something that I think we have to work on, it's not easy. But this is a wonderful story giving us some examples of people who have done that.
1: These conversations are hard. And we often talk about you know what does it take to have these difficult conversations? What does it take to stand up to someone like Pharaoh? And I often think of courage and power and strength. But when you think back to the the story of Pharaoh's daughter, the thing that that is the game changer for her is not courage and power and strength. It's when she sees the hmm. baby who shows up in the in the little basket, the little ark at Pharaoh's court. The game changer is when the daughter looks at the baby and has pity Mm. on the baby. And that idea of pity in Hebrew, as in English, it it means to have compassion, but there's a particular sense of that in the Hebrew, which means holding back from an action that for one reason or another might be expected. And so what was expected of of the daughter would have been to turn in the baby, to hand the kid over to Pharaoh's Mm. official. But because she had this pity, that's the game changer. And I think that's what enables her to speak up to her father and to really at the cost of her death. I mean, Pharaoh would, it would not have been beyond Pharaoh to execute his own daughter for this Mm -hmm. act of rebellion, but it's that pity that does it. That's something that, that I, I really feel challenged by because I think of having courage to stand up, but Who do we need to have pity on? Who do we need to have compassion? Who are we standing up for? Not just who are we standing up against? And maybe it's that first thing. Who are we standing up for or with? Maybe it's that uh, that needs to be our strength and not kind of some sense of standing up to the power.
0: Well, that is uh, just an incredibly helpful, Ryan. I'm so glad you pointed that out. And it seems to be exactly the case that it is much more to stand up against someone in power um, or much harder to do that than to be enabled to uh, defend someone who's kind of suffering and humanity we cannot deny because we've seen it firsthand.
1: It's that firsthand thing that's so important. And I think that's where I'll just speak to uh, um, my own context as a white male and in predominantly uh, white slash dominant culture churches. I think it's difficult to stand up for racial justice when racial justice just is a cause, it's an issue, mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's a topic, but when it's it's something personal, it's about people we know, it's about people we love, it's about people we care for, it's about people that we neighbor, and are in community with, when we can move into that space. And of course, that's a risky, daring space uh, for people of dominant culture because it involves relationships, it involves vulnerability and mutuality. But it's only when we get there and move beyond the issue or advocacy stage that I think we really have that power and courage to stand up and to speak out,
0: Ryan. This has been such a rich conversation. I'm I'm so grateful to have gotten to have it. I'm so grateful for our folks who get to listen in on it through this podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Amy. It's my pleasure, and I do hope our conversations continue uh, beyond this as well.
0: Yes, me too. And thank you to all of our listeners, and thanks for sharing with me about the good faith conversations that you are having, and for all of the conversations that that we're trying to engage in during this season and beyond. Uh, We'll be back next week and uh, so grateful to you for coming along this journey with us. Thank you for listening.